Well, good morning again. In, uh, in the Isaiah reading, chapter 2, Isaiah gives uh, kind of an, an image of, of what things might look like in the future, uh, but he also presents the ideal, kind of the original hope of uh, why the children of Abraham were chosen and his many descendants. Because uh, ancient Israel, or the children of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were uh, given the special privilege of cultivating and hosting the presence of God. This eventually became known as the tabernacle in uh, the uh, first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch. And it would travel around with them, and God's presence would descend like a cloud. And at the same time, God's presence was dangerous, so there, there are rules and regulations to follow. The priests had an enormous burden on how to keep things proper and clean. And we're, we're actually talking about this during the Bible study that I teach in between the services, so right after this, by looking at the, the book of Leviticus, and it's it's actually pretty helpful once you sort of peel off the weirdness of the book. Because God's presence is profound and it's dangerous and it's life-changing and life-giving provided that you are properly prepared. But the intention for God uh, to... or the intention, excuse me, in God establishing a nation for Himself was to set up a nation of priests that would then demonstrate to rest of humanity what it looked like to follow the one true God, the God who created everything. And when Isaiah is talking about the nations coming to the mountain of God, the mountain of God is just a stand-in for the temple of God, the presence of God, the place where God rests. Now, history didn't quite play out like that. As it turns out, Israel is uh, populated by a group of things called humans. And humans tend to not do so great. It's just kind of how it works. We are capable of immense beauty and creativity. Uh, we are also capable, for the same reason, of immense destruction and despair. But God's promise that he would dwell in and among his people was never lifted. But it did change over time. So when Jesus hits the scene, uh, later writers about Jesus uh, in books called the Gospels, and in particularly the Gospel called John, uh, would make the connection that Jesus who is the divine Son of God, who in a really hard-to-explain way is God Himself, taking on human flesh, is the next step in that process where divinity, God's very presence, is now dwelling with humanity, which, as it turns out, was the purpose from the very beginning. It just took a surprising twist. Now, as Jesus goes around and he teaches and he preaches and he heals people and, and, and brings an end to the brokenness that he encounters within humanity, 
you get a very clear look at what it means for God to actually be here. Now, I don't mean God here in the sense of, well, technically God is everywhere, he's all present. Yeah, sure, whatever. But with Jesus, you get a a, a chance to see what creation looks like when its creator is with it in a very visceral, fleshy, special way. And as it turns out, unsurprisingly, he gives life to everything he touches. Now, at, uh, within the last week of Jesus' life, because he, if, if he truly is who he says he is, then the priests, the high-ranking priests of the temple, which was supposed to be the presence of God, but by this point had become so corrupt that God's presence was not said to dwell during this, uh, in the temple during this era, well, they realized that if Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, it's lights out for them, And I don't know if you've noticed, but when people are in power, they tend to like to keep it. And so they had to get Jesus killed. And Jesus is fully aware of this. Um, In that last week, before their plan kind of comes to fruition, he's teaching within the temple complex. And this is in Luke chapter 21, I think. And Jesus' disciples, you assume, are there as well as a crowd who is really eating up what Jesus is saying. And somebody, uh, somebody points out, as they're standing in the temple area, look how beautiful this temple is. Now, side note, Peter would have been there when he heard this, or when, when whoever asked or said this did. Um, now, the person, whoever it was, said, wow, Jesus, look at how beautiful this temple is, was not wrong. By this point, the temple had become incredibly wealthy and opulent. It was built up by Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who technically held the title King of the Jews. Uh, This is also the Herod who killed a bunch of children because he was trying to kill Jesus. Uh, We don't have a record outside of the Bible of that event. We have records of other things that he did. And honestly, killing children, that's like... A 7 out of 10 compared to some of the other things Herod the Great did. But he really could build and he made the temple of God into essentially a tourist attraction. People from all over the Greco-Roman world would come and look at it because it was amazing. In response to that, Jesus gives a very stark warning. He says, this is all coming down. This is all going to be destroyed. And that's not the first time he's said something crazy like this. In fact, to kick off this final week of his life, he went over the Mount of Olives, looked over the Kidron Valley, and he could, where you could see the, the landscape or cityscape, I guess, of, of ancient Jerusalem, and the most prominent thing in that, um, that, that picture would have been the temple itself. And as he sees it, he burst into tears because he knew that the, the city leadership, the temple leadership was going to reject him. And by rejecting him, they are rejecting what God is doing. But even more so, I can't decide if it's worse or not, by rejecting Jesus, it is 
setting the people of Judea on a collision course. They had been trying to establish their own kingdom of God through violence, and it developed into this weird kind of nationalism that was going to eventually lead to them picking a fight with the Romans. And uh, I don't know if you know much about Roman history, but don't do that. Um, hmm, uh, bad things happen. And uh, Jesus actually stakes his, or puts his reputation on the line as a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he is a prophet. By making the claim that Jerusalem, the holy city, and the temple itself will be destroyed. And shockingly enough, Jesus is right. Within a generation, it comes down. So again, back to that moment, they say, wow, Jesus, look at all of this. He says, it's coming down. Its time is up. Now, a good chunk of the rest of the New Testament, our sacred writings as Christians, is in a weird way wrestling with the idea of what does the presence of God mean without a temple? Because at the time of its writing, all of the New Testament is essentially Jewish literature. And oddly enough, it's some of the earliest Jewish literature that we have, or that exists anywhere. Because the idea of the presence of God is not easily separated from the tabernacle or the temple, the sacred space. And after Jesus uh, is died, God defeats death by raising him from the dead, which nobody saw coming, by the way. And then uh, that happened at Passover, and then 50 days later, what we call Pentecost, Jewish people would call Shavuot, God's presence actually came down in a very striking, but kind of obvious way. If you don't know the story, Jesus' uh, disciples and kind of his extended disciples, about 120 people, are praying near the temple and there's like this huge sort of scary sound and then tongues of fire come and descend on people, drawing images or imagery or ways of talking about God's presence inhabiting sacred space, only this time it's resting on people. And so as the writers of the New Testament are, are working out how to talk about the presence of God, apart from a temple, the conclusion that they arrive at is that God resides in people. I know I've said this before at some point, but the Apostle Paul uh, will, will, use the, or will make the claim, don't you know that your bodies are the temples of the living God? He's actually being straightforward with this. He's not being cute. He's not drawing an analogy. He's being way more straightforward than Paul normally is. He's saying, no, 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 really. God's presence is in you. It used to be in the tabernacle. It was in the temple. Now it's in you. As it turns out, that has some big implications. Uh, Peter, who, I mean, almost certainly was standing there when somebody goes, wow, look at how beautiful this is. And I'm kind of surprised Peter himself didn't say that because Peter tends to open his mouth and not think about the words coming out. Uh, but 
later, we're not exactly sure when, but later Peter will write to some followers of Jesus. And we, and, and we heard what, part of what he wrote. Did you notice some of the images and some of the phrases that he uses? He calls Christians living stones. Building up a house of God. House of God is just another, well, it's kind of like a Hebraic or, or Jewish way of talking about the temple, talking about sacred space. And he's not the only one that will use that kind of talk or use that kind of image to talk about who the body of Christ really is. That you and me, followers of Jesus, bear sacred space. And God uses his people, both then and now, to construct a metaphorical house of God, a new temple, a place where things get done, for God's sake. Um, I assume it's a coincidence, but the idea of like stones being fit together um, has, ki- has kind of been my misery for like the last two weeks. I've been building this retaining wall in my backyard. Um, it, it, we originally, when we moved in, there were like these old kind of decaying railroad ties and it was looking like it was starting to fail and so we had to pull them all out. And I said, I'm not messing with the railroad ties because they, they go away after enough time. So I'm using stone and I tend to not think things through. So the stones that I'm using are 50 pounds each. And I calculated out that by the end of this, I will have moved uh, a little over two tons of pea gravel and over 17,000 pounds of stone. I've had a lot of time to think about stone. Um, and my only consolation as I've been doing this almost entirely by myself is that I've been miserable the whole time. And, and my, my parents came in town like two days ago and it's like, here's a shovel, I need help. Um, and then it rained. So, so, so now we're pressure testing that wall. <laughs> we'll see how good of a foundation I, I laid. Uh, but one of the things I noticed is that a single stone is useless. It's just boom, stone, whatever. Uh, a single stone with a bunch of pea gravel underneath it is more stable, but it's also useless. About, I'm going to estimate about 600, 700, 700 or 800 pounds of pea gravel leveled, tamped, dug, uh, plus 40, on that first layer, 46, I think, 50 pound stones makes for a nice line. Well, curved. Um, But then when you start adding on to that, after a sore neck, sore hips, sore back, one sore knee, I will confess a little bit of profanity, um, (laughs) layers start to form. And then you get something that's actually going to do things. It's going to do what it's intended to do. It's going to hold back the dirt going to have ways to deal with moisture that might get absorbed yesterday and today to pass through it 
so that it, it, it'll have a kind of flexibility even though the wall itself is immovable. It's actually going to make a backyard functional for the first time really since we've moved in. Living stones are like that. They do things. They don't do well alone. Throughout the history of the Christian church, our people, you, you, you almost never hear of a single person going off and accomplishing great things for Jesus. And for every person who seems to have a name that Christians recognize, take an obvious one, like the Apostle Paul. You look real closely, there's a whole array of living stones that supported him, fed him, took notes for him, wrote his letters for him, carried what, as it turns out, is the actual Word of God to other structures of living stone that were scattered across the Mediterranean world. And the history of our people from then through now and on into the future is a history of people, of, of us, stones who are alive, who individually and alone, for the sake of God's kingdom, not that useful, but when we start locking in, well, we bear the presence of God to the world who desperately needs it. This applies to the LWML who do really, really cool things. Sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes a little more in your face. They've had a huge impact on God Cares About You and... Uh, and, and, and our ministry to a really tough part of Albuquerque. But you could easily say this about any other group that we have, both here at Christ Lutheran in Albuquerque and in the Church Universal, that stones who are alive in Jesus, who have passed through His death and their baptism, raised in new life and live in that new life, who have been made alive as we lock in, we have given, been given the enormous and beautiful task of being that living divine structure to the world that needs it. And so on this Sunday, LWML Sunday, we honor how God has used our women to do that. But we also recognize that this is kind of what God had in mind. And he continues to do that for all of us. Amen.